0: The natural world is endlessly fascinating to me. I love watching nature shows. I mentioned a couple weeks ago, you guys weren't here. I mentioned Steven's new nature show. I love it. It is so funny and also informative. I, seriously, I, I like it even more than the 52 skills stuff. It's hilarious. Um, I love I love that my girls will sit and watch planet earth with me. Um, Angie tolerates it. <laughs> um, I, I just love that stuff. Nature documentaries, they, they always focus on the same things, where they get their food, how they eat, how they reproduce, and how they defend themselves. And it's that last topic that we're going to draw on this morning, how our creator God in his vast imagination provided organisms with the means to put up a fight against whatever their predators or environments can throw at them. So we're going to talk about how animals defend themselves because it would be weird to do a ser- whole sermon on how animals reproduce. So we're going to not do that. There's a really mind-boggling number of, of different defenses across the spectrum of flora like. There's a lot of ways that plants and animals defend themselves. Some are built to outrun or outswim or outclimb or outfly their enemies. Others come equipped with hides and horns, claws, fangs, stingers, all kinds of weaponry to defend themselves. Others uh, are protected by venoms, and poisons and toxins. And some creatures like rattlesnakes or poison tree frogs, they will advertise, they'll broadcast their venomousness. So when you hear the rattling, you know that you're in danger because they don't want to f- have a fight. So they warn you first and then they'll, they'll poison you if they need to. We talked about the blood squirting lizard in from that was my communion message a few weeks ago. It was weird, but the blood squirting lizard we talked about, um, fits under that category as well. They, there's some toxin in that blood. Camouflage is another popular defense. You spot the owl. I like, I like, I like those, um, find the animal, camouflaged animal games. But camouflage is another popular defense. A few animals can even alter their appearance. My favorite, my favorite creature of all time is the llama. Because, um, my friend Matthew and I, it's very, it's got sentimental appeal to me. But my second favorite animal is the cuttlefish. Have you ever heard of a cuttlefish? it's like a squid it's related to the squid they're fairly intelligent but they their their skin is amazing and it can they they'll walk up or not walk up they swim swim up to a creature and they'll they'll make like these radiating beams on their skin of color transformation and they'll like hypnotize their prey and then they'll eat it and they can go down to like you know a sea sponge they're like weirdly shaped underwater they can make their bodies look exactly like that and just, they're fascinating. So when you get home, your homework is to go on youtube.com and uh, search cuttlefish uh, camouflage and it'll blow your mind. Anyway, um, mimicry is like camouflage. Mimicry is uh, where a creature looks like another creature to protect itself. So like monarch butterflies are poisonous to birds. The viceroy butterfly is not poisonous to birds, but it looks almost indistinguishable from a monarch butterfly. So they they get all the protection of being a monarch without actually being a monarch. Angie, she's sitting back here going like this. See, I said you don't, you patiently tolerate planet Earth. This stuff is fascinating to me. I love it. So, you know, listen up and you might learn something. For some creatures, their defense is their size. Either they're too big to bring down or too small to find. For others, it's location. They live where most other creatures are unable or unwilling to go. Like moles live underground. Uh, penguins, emperor penguins, live in the Antarctic where there's literally nothing else except them. Clownfish, they live inside poisonous sea anemones where their predators can't get them. Other organisms possess superior senses, so intensified sense of smell to protect themselves, hypersensitive whiskers, echolocation in the dark. And for yet others, their only defense is proliferation. They make lots and lots of babies, rapidly and frequently, to preserve their species. This is how the Catholic faith became the largest of all Christian (laughs) denominations. (laughs) But you could go on and on. From, I, I read this page of weird animal defenses. There's a type of newt that can actually extend its rib cage out like this to make like a spiny barrier. That's very weird. Or shrimp that can punch underwater at the, greater than the speed of sound and it creates a sonic boom that will knock their their enemies out. It's fascinating. Termites that are like suicide bombers. They If there's an enemy coming, they'll walk out to their enemy and blow themselves up. Um, or the sea cucumber that shoots its own internal organs out of its anus and grows new ones. How's that for a defense? That's very strange. Yeah. It's, natu- it's the natural world, Mavis. It's okay. But <laughs> nature is full of bizarre and beautiful and brilliant means of defending itself from danger. Well, danger is plentiful around the small but thriving population of Christians in and around the Roman city of Philippi. We've talked about these dangers before. They're twofold. There's dangers from outside the church, from hostile neighbors that zealously promote worship of the emperor. Um, there's dangers also within the church from selfish quarreling and infighting that threatens to undermine their commitment to the gospel and, and to the bigger picture of serving Jesus. Paul's just finished updating his beloved Philippians. The Philippians are kind of his favorite church. And he's just finished giving a personal update, um, and the personal update is that he himself has faced down these very same dangers, uh, dangers from outside the church and from within the church. He's faced them, not uh, like stoically, like, oh, I have to, but he's faced them and rejoiced for be, despite the danger. And in fact, because of the danger, God is being glorified. So he's able to see purpose in his suffering. But today's passage marks a turning point in Paul's letter to the Philippians. He, he takes the attention off himself, He's done with his personal update. Um, his, best, his personal update is best summarized in verse 21 when he says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Basically, they want to know how Paul's doing. He says, well, a lot of mess is happening around me, but to live is Christ, to die is gain. It's all good. So he's done updating on himself, and now he turns his attention towards the, his purpose for writing to the Philippians. He talks about um, his struggles, his attitude of rejoicing for the progress of God's bigger picture, those, the reason he brings those up isn't to brag and to say, hey, this all this nonsense is happening to me and look how great I'm doing. He wants to set himself up, his his attitude and his thinking and his lifestyle. He he wants that to be a plumb line for the Philippians to measure themselves against. Are you able to rejoice when you go through the same suffering I'm going through? And really, more accurately, as we'll see over the next four weeks, they're not to imitate Paul's um. Lifestyle and attitude. Paul sets them up in the next four weeks to imitate Christ's lifestyle. So Paul is imitating Jesus. He doesn't want them to be like Paul necessarily. He will say specifically, Your attitude should be the same as Christ Jesus. He, he sets Jesus up to be the model for them. So for the next four weeks, this is, uh, this is the first of four weeks, um, we'll, we'll kind of follow the same line of thinking and it all comes back to the first verse of our passage today where it says whatever happens conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of christ all these next four sermons are, are variations of that theme conduct yourselves in a way worthy of the gospel of jesus christ we'll learn about suffering and unity and attitude but it will all come back to that statement conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of jesus christ it's the key phrase that informs the next 21 verses of philippians But, as always, Paul's instructions and encouragements aren't limited to the city of Philippi 2,000 years ago. Nor are they even limited to the words of Paul. Our lesson on unity in suffering will also be taught to us by one particularly hardy creature whose greatest form of defense can be instructive to all of us together as Christians, standing together in the Holy Spirit in a cold and hostile world. We're going to learn from Paul. We're also going to learn from nature, Angie. (laughs) So... So let's kick off the first of our four-week examination of what it means to conduct ourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel by reading Philippians one to 27-30, and if you don't have it, I've got it here. It says this, whatever happens, conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then, whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in one spirit, contending as one man for the faith of the gospel, without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. This is a sign to them that they will be destroyed, but that you will be saved, and that by God. For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for him, since you are going through the same struggle you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. It's kind of a jarring phrase, right? That um, It's been granted to you on behalf of Christ not just to believe in him, but to suffer for him. Makes it sound like it's a gift that he's giving. And... It's not that suffering is a gift from God, I want to clarify. It's that suffering, as Paul has just said in his own personal update, suffering gives us an opportunity to understand, to unite with Jesus closer, and gives us a great opportunity to, to show that in suffering there is still hope, there is still joy. So it's not that God wants us to suffer, it's not that God makes us suffer, it's just that in suffering, Paul makes it sound like the suffering is a gift, No, the gift is that in suffering, we can have the bigger picture in mind. That's the gift. I just want to clarify that a little bit. Having focused on his reasons for rejoicing in the sufferings of his recent past, that's verses 12 to 18, Paul then gave his reasons for rejoicing in anticipation of his future, whether it be death or life, that's verses 18 to 26. Whether in past or present or future, whether in oppression, persecution, unjust arrest or peace, Whether in good reputation or slanderous opposition, in any situation happy or painful, Paul can rejoice. Why? Because the gospel is advancing. He's got his eyes on the bigger picture. That was his personal update. That was how Paul addresses his circumstances to his friends in Philippi. But now he pivots away from his own circumstances and begins to dig into the circumstances of the Philippians. And as verse 30 makes very explicit, the Philippians are enduring the same sources of suffering and struggle that Paul has just finished outlining for them from his own life. Namely, the struggles to advance the gospel despite issues both inside the church and outside the church itself. The main strike struggle he's most likely indicating is the external struggle. So pressures and oppression from outside the church being felt by those inside the church. The struggle to endure systematic injustice carried out in the name of the empire. I mentioned when we looked at the intro to Philippians a few weeks ago, the the character of the city of Philippi. Philippi sat on a super important trade route from Europe in the west to the Orient in the east, and it had for centuries. And so when Rome conquered it, the emperor made the really shrewd and really wise and, and really gracious decision to bestow upon the people of Philippi this important trade route. He made them all immediately Roman citizens which was not always what happened when Rome conquered a city. And to be a Roman citizen meant benefits and blessings and rewards. To be a Roman citizen was the, the the best status you could have in the world at the time. Not everyone conquered by Rome was a Roman citizen, but everyone in Philippi was. And as a result of that gift, that gracious gift from the emperor, which was actually just a shrewd business move, as a result of that gift, Philippi was fiercely loyal to the emperor to the point where they worshipped him. They worshipped Caesar in Philippi in a way that they didn't in other places around the empire, not even necessarily Rome. Caesar was Lord and Savior throughout Philippi. You couldn't escape Philippi without hearing or reading those words. Caesar is Lord and Savior. And so for this reason, you can see how the locals, the local non-Christian Philippians, would bristle at the idea, the, the, the rumblings of this new religious sect, which was openly proclaiming a new Lord, a new Savior, a new king and a new kingdom. Uh, they, are you, they worship Caesar as Lord and Savior and now there's these this upstart group of fanatics saying that some guy they crucified decades earlier is Lord and Savior. That's ridiculous to them. Not just ridiculous, blasphemous to them. And so you can see how, how they would would bristle and want to stamp out these Christians. To the non-Christians in Philippi, Having anyone other than Caesar as Lord and Savior was blasphemy. This, by the way, is what Paul's tapping into when he lays the foundation for the next few paragraphs. Verse 27 says in the NIV, which is what you see back here, it says, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. That term, conduct yourself, it's a relatively poor translation of the Greek word polytueste. Polytueste. I think, I think. My Greek is rusty. But that word polytueste is a compound word. And the first word in that compound is polis. Polis tueste. Combine it together. The word polis is a word that maybe is familiar to you. Think of Indianapolis or uh, Minneapolis or Metropolis. So with those words in mind, any guess what the word polis means? Grouping of people. City. Polis literally means city or city-state. Like Sparta was a city, but it was a, a state, like more like a country than an actual city. And that's what polis means. It's also where the word politics and politician come from. They, they have the same root words. Polis. Politics is the, the affairs of the city. Politicians are those who are in care of the city. In ancient Greek literature, politueste is a verb that means take an action, an active interest in the affairs of your city or city state. You could extrapolate that to take an active concern in how your country is doing. It's a word that signifies good citizenship in the polis or the larger place that you find yourself in. So when it says conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, really what Paul's saying is be a good citizen in a way that honors Christ, honors the gospel of Christ. Citizens of Philippi, would be very familiar with the term politoeste. That's their whole identity. They are fiercely loyal to the emperor. They're super concerned with being good citizens of Rome. That's their whole thing. They were literally brought to worship because they were so thankful to Rome for the citizenship bestowed on them. Philippi as a city was all about living as a citizen in, as Paul says in verse 27, a worthy manner. That's what Philippi was all about. But in verse 27, Paul isn't impressing on the Christians the need to be good citizens of Rome, even though other places he does say we should live within the rules of the empire. He's not saying be, conduct yourself as a good Roman citizen. Instead, Paul purposefully chose this politically charged word in a politically charged city to a bunch of Christians enduring politically charged persecution precisely because this polytueste that they require means taking an active interest in their new place of citizenship, the kingdom of God. So when he says conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, that means be a good kingdom citizen. Live as the king would want you to live. Live in a way that brings honor to the king, that makes his good news known to all people. So conduct yourself, that's a little weak. But when we think of it as a political term, not a worldly political term, but a connection to our kingdom, I think it has a real depth of understanding to it. So don't just conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. Polytueste is a deeper word than just conduct yourself implies. Instead, here's what it means. In the face of significant struggles both inside and outside the church, Paul's imploring his friends to remember their true citizenship. To whom do you really belong? To Rome? Philippi? As fiercely loyal as you are to Rome, is that who you belong to? No. As members of the kingdom of God. And to live in a way that illustrates and brings honor to the new and glorious polis that they belong to. Not to mention the high king of this new polis. That's what he's saying. Despite all the the mess you're going through, stay loyal to your king. Conduct yourselves in a way that brings honor to your new king. As great as the blessings of Roman citizenship are, and as great as the blessings of Canadian citizen, citizenship are, and I think it's objectively true that this is one of the greatest countries in the world. It just... Just is. We're, we're, we're pretty fortunate. As great as those blessings are, though, Paul's reminding them and us, and not too subtly, that being a citizen of God's kingdom requires far more discipline, but also carries with it far greater blessings and far greater rewards than any earthly citizenship. So live your lives as honorable citizens of the new king and the new kingdom to whom you belong. Um, that has been your extended Greek word nerd moment for the, for the morning. Back to the shared struggles between Paul and the Philippians. So the first struggle is from outside the church. Remember, Paul, as he's um, dictating this, is literally chained at the wrist to a Roman soldier at all times. So he's literally chained to a symbol of Roman oppression. He he cannot escape this reminder that Rome is is in charge, and they're using their in-chargeness to, to crush people. Since Paul mentions in verse 30 that the Philippians are undergoing the same struggle as he himself is facing, that means the Philippians are likely being persecuted and thrown in prison like Paul is. It's a, when I say that, by the way, it's not like when we think of our world, our Western world, persecuting us as Christians, it's super lame when Christians talk about that. It drives me nuts because the oppression that we feel here in the West means people maybe don't like us or maybe they won't talk to us at the water cooler. Or maybe they'll make fun of us on Facebook. That's not persecution. That's We are not martyrs in any real sense. And when we try to make ourselves out to be martyrs, I think it really dilutes our witness to the world who sees us as being in power because the church really is in power in the West. So it's when I talk about oppression, I'm not talking about being shunned or people being rude to us. For Paul and for the Philippians, it was quite literally a life or death Sense of persecution: Christian families being beaten and thrown in prison, uh, Christian business people not able to make a living because the whole their whole city will shun them. Christian slaves who have no rights being executed for their faith, and slaves made up a large portion of the population of the early Christian church. Paul himself had been abused and imprisoned upon his first visit to Philippi, so. When he says the same struggle that you saw I had, that's what he means. They literally saw him get mobbed, beaten, thrown in jail for his faith. They saw that with their own eyes. And he's saying, what you saw me have, that very, very real persecution, I know that you're going through that same thing. He knows that. And so the persecution from outside the church is very real and it's very painful. Later in Philippians 3, the second source of of danger, Paul mentions, is the Philippians are facing the threat of Judaizers. Anybody know what that word Judaizer means? A Judaizer is somebody who goes to new Christians and forces them to follow the Jewish law and get circumcised and do all those things even though they're completely unnecessary. The Judaizers, Paul calls them mutilators of the flesh because they're not worried about Jesus they're not worried about the gospel, they're not worried about the kingdom of God, they're worried that, that other people be like them. And they think that they've got it all figured out, and people need to be like them before they can be saved. And Paul says, no, that's not how it is anymore. The Judaizers are like a bridge between the struggles outside the church and the struggles inside the church, because they kind of fit under both. Either way, they're adding to the hardships of the Philippians. But there's one more struggle that would dominate Paul's writing throughout the rest of this letter, particularly the next few paragraphs into chapter 4. This is the internal struggle within the church, headlined by two women named Euodia and Syntyche who are leaders in the church and who are feuding. Their selfish, quarrelsome behavior is threatening to splinter their effective witness in Philippi. It's not at a point yet where Paul has to come down hard on them and really discipline them, as he does in other letters, but the feuding and complaining have certainly already gone further than Paul's comfortable with, and he's seeing dangers arise. You can hear him addressing this disunity in his repeated use of the, the word one. So it says here, they are to be of one spirit and one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel. One, one, together. You can hear him addressing this disunity. This theme of unity will really come alive in next week's passage So I'm not going to go into it too much today, but it's certainly present in what we've read this morning. And so the dangers for the Philippians, inside, outside the church, are very real. There are dangers in the outside environment, which is cold and hostile towards believers. And there's dangers festering within the faith community itself, threatening to weaken them and pick them apart. And with that image of a cold, harsh environment and and enemies threaten to pick you apart, I'm going to go to nature now, because nature is an excellent teacher. And verses 27 to 30 always conjure up for me images of one particular animal and its powerful means of defending itself from A, a cold, harsh environment, even as it defends itself from B, predators that seek to weaken and undermine their very lives. So I have a little clip for us to watch. This is from a BBC program called Frozen Planet. And yes, thank you, Tom. Muskoxes are gigantic wild goats more than oxen. They give birth in the Arctic winter. Newborns must be able to run. Wolves are about. The wolves are looking for any youngsters that get left behind. The muskox help them to keep up. The muskox behave as wildebeest or seals never would. They unite into a single force. They form a wall between the wolves and the youngsters. These muskox know that they are a family. They share a common bond. Faced with baby-mad, giant, hairy goats working together, wolves usually give up. David Attenborough is a treasure. His, his voice narrating that is so great. Um, but Philippians 1 always reminds me of the muskox. I think I've actually used this metaphor in a sermon before. It's not plagiarism if you're ripping off yourself. But I've used it before and I'm using it again because it, it always stands out to me. How perfect it is. Paul speaks of living lives worthy of the new kingdom that we belong to, of bringing honor to the gospel of Christ. That cannot happen if we crumble at the first bit of suffering. We can't bring honor to the gospel if we fold every time we get hurt. And it cannot happen if we are fractured or disunified. We cannot advance the gospel if we're fighting with ourselves. And so Paul calls us to be like the muskox muskox are well suited to face the coldness and harshness of an arctic existence their thick woolly coats protect them from the blasting winds and frigid temperatures their horns and hooves are sharp and strong to to get at the the grass the sustenance under the snow and so it is with christians while we may not have horns or hooves and while the only part of me that resembles the muskox hairy coat is my chin my shoulders um we don't look anything like a muskox, obviously, but we resemble the muskox in another way. We, too, are well-suited and well-equipped to deal with the harsh, cold environment around us. How? We have all we'll ever need through the thing that Paul mentions in the last uh, part of the of verse 27. And in fact, it's less of a thing and more of a presence, and that's the one spirit, the Holy Spirit. Just as muskox are equipped to deal with the harshness and the coldness of their environment, when we experience harshness and coldness, and again... We don't experience much of this in our Western world. The church is very much in power in the Western world, unfortunately. And so when I say harshness and coldness, I just mean any kind of suffering in the world around us. And we all suffer at different times for different ways. So I don't want to try and connect us to the Philippians and say that we are oppressed. We are not an oppressed people. It's important to distinguish that. But the world outside is still cold and harsh. And I don't mean just literally, because it's been minus 40 for three weeks in a row. It the world oppresses us. Jesus uses the phrase the world as all that is evil around us. And that's how I'm using it too. So there is brokenness all around us. It's a harsh cold environment that we are asked to 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 sow good into. Thankfully we are equipped with the Holy Spirit. Without the Holy Spirit, we are we don't have what we need to defend ourselves. If we stand in the one spirit, we will receive the promises Jesus made in the last few chapters of John. So here's a few promises Jesus made about the Holy Spirit and how he will defend us from the, from a few chapters in John. So John fourteen fifteen to 17 says, If you love me, keep my commands, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to help you and to be with you forever, the spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him, for he lives with you and will be in you. Later he says, the Advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. John 14, 26. Later he says, very truly I tell you, it is for your good that I am going away. It's amazing to me that Jesus says, it's better for me to be away from you. That's what he says. Unless I go away, the Advocate will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. When he comes, he will prove the world to be wrong. To be in the wrong about sin and righteousness and judgment. And finally, when he, the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. That's John 16, 13. So these are all the ways that the Holy Spirit acts as our defense. The word that Paul, or sorry, the word that Jesus uses in John is advocate. An advocate is someone who stands up and speaks on your behalf. It's a legal term. Like a lawyer, but we don't like the word lawyer. So Jesus calls him an advocate. Someone who is powerful. Who will stand up for us? And that's what the Holy Spirit does. He defends us by being our source of truth. He helps us. He guides us. He he shows the world how crooked and cold and harsh it really is. And that's just the beginning of the ways that the Holy Spirit does this for us. Is our defense. And so this Spirit that Jesus is talking about will be knowable. He will live within us. He will teach us. He will refine our understanding of life and death. He will guide us. In other words. The Holy Spirit will make us citizens, honorable citizens of the kingdom of God. Moreover, the Holy Spirit is unknown to the cold and brutal world around us. And so he'll prove the world wrong about sin and judgment, which sounds a lot like Paul's encouragement in verse 28 when he says, um, this is a sign to them that they will be saved, but that you will be, or so they will be destroyed, but you will be saved. And that by God. I'm not super comfortable with passages that talk about destruction of people. But for these people who are being oppressed fiercely, that is an encouragement that you don't need to fight against them, that God will, God is just. He will take care of that. All you need to do is endure, which is hard enough as it is. In being united and standing against the cold, harsh environment of the world around us, that will be the sign that our salvation is secure. If we refuse to fade or wither away in in the coldness of the world around us, if we refuse to die off, if we stand firm, to use Paul's words, then that will prove that our, our salvation is secure, that it was real the whole time. And those who live contrary to the gospel, they may destroy us, but in the end, there's a greater destruction coming. And you better believe it, there are wolves out there. Actually, more specifically, I think there are wolves in here. And I don't necessarily mean this building right now. Maybe some of you are like wolves. I don't know. But I mean the church in general. When I think of the external suffering, which again none of us really ever experience in a truly meaningful way, I think of the coldness of the world, harsh and unforgiving. But we are built to withstand it through the empowering presence of the Holy Spirit. But when I think of the wolves, I think of internal issues. I think of the Judaizers who insisted on devouring vulnerable vulnerable believers for their ignorant and self-righteous purposes. Hey, be like me to be saved. Well, anytime you start saying that, it shows that you are more proud than you are humble. Anytime you're more proud than you are humble, you need to question how close you are to the, to the kingdom of God. And so the Judaizers were like wolves. They picked apart the most vulnerable, those who weren't strong in in their faith. We have people like that in the church today. Who do wolves target in that video? Do they target the full-grown mummy musk oxen? No, of course not. They go after the the immature. They go after the vulnerable ones. And that's true of wolves in the church today. Those who are newest in the faith are those who are most vulnerable. When we burden non-Christians or new Christians alike with a bunch of religious expectations and unrealistic moral standards, when we welcome them in the door, say, hey, glad to see you. You need to be like this now or you're not welcome. When we do that, I think we're making two mistakes. When, When we make people... When we say you have to have your crap together before you come in the door, when we when we behave like that, we're making two crucial mistakes, uh, sinful mistakes. Number 1, we're forgetting how hard it is for baby muskox to thrive in this harsh world. And we just suffocate them further with self-righteous demands. It's hard enough to be a newly born muskox. You have to fend off wolves, you have to f- survive in the cold. It's hard. Why would we suffocate them with harder expectations? Be patient. Let them grow. If you guys, when I was a teenager, hadn't been patient with me and trust that I was growing, you never would have hired me knowing what I was like as a teenager. you got to give them a chance to grow. You have to allow for imperfections and mistakes. And number two, we're forgetting that we too were once baby muskox and in fact are still growing and are learning ourselves. We're not the full-grown daddy protector muskox we think we are. In a lot of ways, even though my faith is, I think, strong and healthy and fine, I'm still a baby muskox. You're still a baby muskox. So when we make other people be adult muskox immediately, we're forgetting that, no, we're babies too, and we're all growing together. We are no better, as evidenced by, if we're judging other people, then we are being self-righteous, and that shows we're still baby muskox. We have not grown and matured. Does that make sense, or is that a super stretch of a illustration? I can explain it further, but okay. So in one sense, legalism is like a wolf pack seeking to destroy the immature and the vulnerable in the faith, but there's a much more imminent and a much more dangerous type of wolf. It's a well-camouflaged wolf that we don't always see sneaking up on us until it's ready to rip us to shreds. This is, of course, the same wolf that was beginning to gnaw on the Philippians, on the, the Philippian church. It's the bloodthirsty wolf known as disunity. I hate this wolf. It shows up over and over in the lives of churches and people that I care about. And it's the worst kind of wolf because you never see it coming till it's already eating you alive. I'm not going to say much more about this predator today because as I mentioned, unity will be our main theme for next week. For now, we just, we need to acknowledge its potential presence among us. We need to be on guard against disunity at all times because nothing robs us of our energy or our compassion or our purpose. Quite like selfish quarrels and taking our eyes off the bigger picture to focus on smaller differences. That will rob us of our effectiveness immediately if we're just fighting with ourselves. It doesn't make any sense. But those are the dangers facing those muskoxen. Those are the dangers facing us, fellow muskoxen. A cold, harsh, anti gospel climate around us, though not anywhere near as bad as what the Philippians were experiencing. Plus, the ruthless predators known as self righteousness. Legalism, self-centered disunity. There's a lot of dangers facing even us today, right? But what are Paul's instructions for defending against these internal and external struggles? How can we, a bunch of hairy, thick-headed goats, no offense, like musk Oxen, how can we stand up against the struggles around us and within us? What is our defense? Well, like the musk oxen, we circle up and we stand firm. We build an impenetrable wall of faith. We protect the vulnerable, and we stand as one. There's always more that unites us than divides us in the church. And I'm almost done. I watched a lot of videos of musk oxen in preparing for the sermon. Believe it or not, <laughs> a lot of musk oxen footage. Um, and there's a remarkable number of videos that show the musk oxen failing where the wolves will attack the herd, and the herd will scatter, and a baby will get lost in the chaos and get picked off. Sir David Attenborough, in the video we just watched, says a fascinating thing in the narration, right towards the end. His words were, These muskox know that they are a family. They share a common bond. When the muskox behave as a family, when they remember their common bond and they unite together, They they were impenetrable. The wolves didn't stand a chance. And they just, like it said, it said later in the narration, faced with baby mad, giant hairy goats working together, wolves usually give up. I I really, really love that he said it exactly like that because it's so perfect for what the Philippians are being called to do here. It may sound like a rude description if I'm equating you to those muskochs, but the point needs to be made. It's not like the wolves seek to tear apart our Christian faith. It's not like they'll just give up when they see us singing songs together and taking communion together and praying together. Paul's not being naive like that. He's not just saying, hey, do Christian things and the wolves will give up. But the key is verse 28. He says, when we stand firm in the one spirit that unites us, when we strive together as one mind, focus first and foremost on the gospel. When we refuse to be frightened in any way by those who oppose us, so in other words, When we stand courageously as one, we rob suffering and danger and persecution of its power. We rob disunity of its effect on us when we stand together. If we stand united by the Spirit for the purpose of glorifying Jesus, then the wolves are forced to either attack us or abandon us or join us. Really quick, what do I mean by that? I mean, if they do attack us, it may cause pain, but that pain is, as Paul says, proof that we are following in Jesus' footsteps that persecution is our proof that we will be saved because we didn't wither or give up on Jesus because life got challenging. If we stand strong in our faith until the end, even when the wolves of selfish ambition or ignorant hate or internal squabbles come at us and hunt us and seek to tear us apart, if we stand strong, that will be proof that we are honorable citizens of our polis, our kingdom. If, however, the wolves abandon us, if they see our united front and they give up their fight, give up their efforts to destroy us and just walk away. Or if they see our united front, our united strength and decide to join us, it will not be because we launched a vicious counterattack. By the way, I don't know if there's any recorded instances of wolves just joining up with a muskox herd. So I understand that that's a little weak as a metaphor, but you know what I'm saying? But if they either abandon their fight against us or join us, it's not going to be because we fought back. Jesus is very clear about that. That is not how honorable citizens of heaven behave. We may have sharp, pointy horns that we could use if we want to. We just refuse to use them. Rather, if they give up their attack or join us, it will be because we forgave them when they harmed us. Or we did good to them, even though they hated us. Or we forgave each other when we hurt each other. It will be because we relentlessly circled around the most vulnerable in society and cared for them relentlessly, when nobody else would or could, even in the midst of our own suffering. And that is the mission of the church, by the way, to care for the vulnerable, to care for the weak, because that's us. We are vulnerable and weak. And so we extend that grace to others. And if the world sees us circling around those who are vulnerable, they might just join in with that. It will be because we gave freely without expectation of return, prayed for those that attacked us, turned the other woolly cheek, that, we don't fight back. That's not how we prove to the world how cold and harsh it is by being just as cold and harsh as it is. We prove how cold and harsh the world is by showing an alternative, a warmth that the world doesn't have, a defense, a, a united front that no matter how they attack us, they can't get through. If they abandon us or join us, it will be because our one spirit filled our hearts and minds so full of his one love that the wolves either shrunk away from it in fear and shame, or else gave in to the love and joined the musk oxen, which, again, I don't know if that's ever happened. doesn't matter. That's the power of unity. That's the power of standing together as one mind in one spirit. So nature has many fascinating ways of defending itself. But we as Christians don't need claws or fangs because we don't fight back in that way. We don't need superior abilities or senses because God uses the humble to shame the strong. Humble people like you and me, small people, That's who God chooses to accomplish powerful things. So we don't need to have superior abilities. We just need to be open and willing. We don't need camouflage or mimicry because our love and grace are designed to stand out in this cold, harsh world around us. In the case of the muskox, we are reminded of how we too can defend ourselves against harsh environments and vicious wolves both inside and outside the community. Our only defense is to stand together and face the suffering, face the persecution, and most importantly, face each other, knowing that we are one people with one heart and one mind, filled with the presence of the same one Holy Spirit with one shared goal in mind. And that goal is to courageously bring the glory of the one king of our new one kingdom. That is our mission, bring glory to the king. If we cave to fear or to selfish quarrels or the first whiff of suffering, then we will scatter and stampede and squash out our hope and our faith and our joy. But if we stand as one, we are impenetrable and we'll find ourselves standing together in victory on the last day as well. Be like the muskox, Stand together. That's the only way we can survive. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for the unity that we have in you. Thank you that We can be strong together, even though we are small and weak and and broken people, that we can be united in you and, and make you glorified to the cold and harsh world around us. Father, whatever struggles we are facing, whatever wolves, whatever harsh environment we are facing, help us to stand strong together in you. Holy Spirit, we know that you unite us, you make us strong, You give us purpose. You guide us. So I pray that we would stand united. We wouldn't cave to internal or external struggles. That we'd be strong in you. And we pray these in your name, Jesus. Uh, In the one name of Jesus. Amen. We're also going to learn from nature, Angie. So, you know, listen up and you might learn something. I'm still a baby muskox. You're still a baby muskox.